Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. One of the biggest questions for Australia's future lies in how the country manages its relationships with countries in our region, most notably China, amid shifting power dynamics in global politics. The US no longer commands the sway it once did, though Australia has appeared willing, by and large, to prioritise the US alliance, even as our economic ties to the region have become more entrenched. Patrick Lawrence is an American writer and former correspondent based in Asia, and in a piece in the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs, he makes a case for Australia embracing its Asian-led future. And to chat about all things Australia, Asia and the US, Patrick joins us on the line. Thanks so much for coming on Triple R. What a pleasure from far away, uh, but here we are. Yeah, on the cusp of an election over there as well. Truly, yeah. Yeah, well, I want to get to that in our our conversation. But to start with your piece um, in Australian Foreign Affairs, you highlight how old approaches to how the US engaged with Asia in the post-war period are perhaps no longer appropriate or might be misguided um, given the way the world has changed. In what ways has the US and I guess Australia through its longstanding alliance remained stuck in a certain security-focused mindset? Right. Well, uh, let me go first to one of your remarks just now. Uh, the, the Americans uh, continue to have uh, e- enormous uh, influence in Asia. If if one looks at things uh, just on the uh, on on the face of passing events, uh, the American presence in Asia is 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 not at all diminished. Uh, uh, our the uh, our assertive uh, security policy, military posture, and all that is perfectly in place. Uh, my piece is I intended my piece to suggest uh, what's uh, what's coming at us all. Uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what is let's say arriving now? Okay, um, and uh, I, I think this is changing. Um, uh, I, I think uh, my my starting point is uh, uh, the American the American position the the American intent to uh, somehow uh, block or uh, contain the popular word uh, China's emergence is is a, a completely forlorn enterprise. Uh, Realities are realities. It's the second mo- it's the second largest economy in the world, and the economists will tell us maybe by some measures PPP and all that the largest. Uh, uh, who who cares about the minutia? Uh, China is China presents itself as it does. I think the the important point now and where the Americans go straight off the rails is is interpreting China's intent. In, in, interpreting China's aspirations, what it wants to do, and what it doesn't want to do, uh, and uh, we we radically overestimate uh, China's ambitions, and, and this is what is landing us in trouble. Okay, uh, um, notably, but not only 
in in on the question of let's call it territorial dominion okay uh Territorial dominion is a is a 19th century uh, Western notion. Uh, we're talking about empire. Okay, mm-hmm. it, it is imperative that we refrain from projecting uh, our 19th century framework on the Chinese. They have no record of wanting to. Uh, prevail materially in other nations. Uh, uh, They give no indication uh, that that is their intent. They don't go around bombing and droning people. Uh, I I don't know where this comes from other than, as I say, a kind of projection in in the way psychotherapists use that term. Uh, uh, And uh, to me, it's, it's at least a root, if not the root, of of our difficulties in understanding our current circumstances. Yeah, it's really interesting what you write about about nostalgia, actually, and that China is not nostalgia. And I, and I guess you're referring there to the the post-war era that you just kind of described. But now you're seeing that we're in a, a sort of a post post-war era. Can you talk to that a little bit about um, you know a little bit more about what you see in in where China is coming from at the moment. And I ask that because um, certainly um, China's decisions, you know, directly affect uh, businesses and whole sectors here in Australia. And in recent times, um, some have felt that wrath, you know, and displeasure. Um, What do you see as that um, approach that that China is taking at the moment? Right now, um I think it, I, in my view, uh, some of your listeners might think this guy is a, uh, an impossible softy. Uh, I, I reject the criticism if it, if it arises. Um, it, it, in my opinion, uh, China's aspirations uh, are rooted in its history. China knows that it is arriving, let's say, uh, and it wants to arrive, and it's not going to let anybody tell it not to. Uh, I am perfectly aware of how difficult it is for people on your side of the world to think this through. Uh, I'm not there. I I do understand that, and I appreciate the difference. But uh, I I think it's important for Australians, uh, New Zealanders, to look at what the rest of the region is saying and thinking uh, and not take the Americans' word for what they're saying and thinking. Listen to them directly. Uh, I do not see panic. Uh, As I noted in the essay, I don't see anybody knocking on the Pentagon's doors telling telling uh, telling us over here that they need our warships and jet planes that's not what's happening uh, it, it, what's happening is uh, 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 a gradual rather uh, Asian in style uh, search for accommodation compromise uh, uh, you know a, a new equilibrium um, uh, and uh, I, I think Asians have learned post-Cold War. It's Asia for Asians, a uh, somewhat simplistic phrase. Um, uh, we have to find our own way now. 
Um, the old binaries don't really apply. Um, Mike Pompeo, our, uh, well, one can say a lot of things about Mike Pompeo, let's just say our Secretary of State, uh, wants everybody to gang up on China and drum up uh, Cold War II. He just loves the thought. Um, uh, I don't hear Asians, uh, I don't see Asians signing on for this, right? They, they don't look at these uh, uh, ideological distinctions the way we in the West do, right? And uh, I, I think Australia needs to think this through for itself. Once again, I quite appreciate how difficult this is, uh, given, the, given the traditions. Um, but I think uh, just the way China is looking forward, not back, it's informed by its past, but it's not looking back there. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so must so must Australia. Um, and uh, and uh, you know the the Americans. The, the sooner uh, you folk understand this, the better. We are stuck in a kind of nostalgia that is just you know the Pentagon. Uh, these people seem to think they're watching in some kind of endless. Van Heflin movie or something, right? Uh, uh, it, 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 it's just that sounds like a nightmare. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should remind listeners we're speaking with uh, US writer uh, Patrick Lawrence all about his piece in the brand new edition of Australian Foreign Affairs. But it's really interesting talking about the role of nostalgia and, and how Australia kind of sees its place in the world and so on. Because the US Australia alliance, of course, has been a, a real bedrock, I suppose, of Australia's foreign policy since the post world war two years but i mean despite that australia has had a strong engagement in the pacific region but for some reason we struggle to kind of comprehend that history and and identify with it on a on a cultural level i guess it's really interesting to me speaking to someone from the u.s about australia's role because we don't kind of get that perspective very often in terms of our sort of geographical location why do you think it is that we find it so difficult to culturally align with countries in our region Wow, um, a good question, and that means a difficult question. Uh, I, I suppose there are various dimensions. Western identity surely has something to do with it. We're not Asian people. That's so true. Uh, uh, we're Westerners. That, that's also true. But uh, I, I think it comes time now to transcend that and not consider geography some kind of accident. Uh, or anomaly and and say we're not we're not asian and we our heritage is western but we are a pacific nation right and, and once that uh once that shift in in consciousness is accomplished i think something really very fine can come out of it and that is that Australia will learn to, to think for Australia, right? Uh, I, I greatly admire your country, and uh, because I do, uh, I, I really would love to, to see it begin thinking for itself. I'm perfectly confident it can, and to be perfectly frank, I, uh, I sometimes wonder why it doesn't have the, doesn't have the confidence to do so. Right. Uh, um, I think my point in the essay is it comes time to do that 
because while the Americans uh, could hardly be more dominant in Asia as we, as we look around, and I'm talking materially only, right? Mm. Uh, military, militarily only. Um, it, it, it really comes time that this this question must must be engaged, you know. And I I, I think I've argued in a couple of places in your publications. Um, uh, I think it would do Australia and and its people an enormous power of good to start thinking for themselves, right? Um, and gain the confidence to say America's interests are this, and and we align on A, B, and C. But our interests are these, and we we define them from the ground up. And l- let's let's see about uh, serving our interests on our own, right? What a what a, a splendid field of possibilities would open up uh, at the very moment that is accomplished. Can we um, go to some of the thinking that you see coming out of the Asia? Well, particularly the Asian continent, um, and and you write that uh, many countries within Asia um, no longer look to the West for the mistake that modernising means westernising. And I'd love you to speak to that a little bit more because you write at length about the re-Asianisation of Asia, and I know that's kind of a term that you know I'd first heard from you. But what do you see as the the path being chosen at the moment? And I suppose I just kind of in parentheses want to say that we're seeing an economic rebuild happening around the world. Is it possible that uh, the recovery from COVID could kick some of this forward much faster than it otherwise might happen? Yeah, yeah, I get you. Uh, um, uh, I, I, I consider the... Um, Perhaps your, your, your scholarly listeners might correct me on the chronology, but I, I, I consider the mid twentieth century presumption with with the with the coming on coming on of, of what they call modernization theory. Uh, the, the the mistake of confusing westernization with modernization. One of the tragedies of the second half of the last century. Okay, uh, it it. Uh, it diminished any notion of uh, local identity or culture, or, uh, and so on, and and in, and inflicted. Well, actually, I must correct myself before I even finish. I think it began in the 19th century with 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 Meiji and uh, the modernization in Japan in the second half of the uh, of China. Forgive me, in the second half of the moder- of the 19th century. Right? Uh, to modernize means to westernize. Uh, I honestly think has been a, a profound mistake, uh, the echoes of which we live with now. And um, I, I think when the wall came down and the Cold War ended and the, the binaries imposed without any great welcome among many people uh, by the United States uh, it, in the course of conducting the Cold War, uh, when they ended, people began to recognize uh, that modernization and westernization are not at all the same thing. And uh, I've argued in numerous places that 
to be truly modern is to become oneself, right? Uh, and, and that was my point in the essay. Uh, if I've answered your question, fine. If if I haven't, please uh, uh, advise, and I'll go further. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, we're almost out of time. But as I mentioned at the beginning, we, you are in on the cusp of an election over there in the United States, and I mean the the Trump presidency has you know been fascinating. If that's the right term for for a whole number of reasons, but fascinating w- is a is a splendidly. Uh uh, diplomatic good for you <laughs> that's right I, I, I agree um, let's go with that for now why not um, <laughs> but uh, I mean there was a sense that that old kind of traditional orthodoxies in foreign policy might be upended by Trump for example um, you know him sort of visiting the uh, North Korea and 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 fraternizing mm. with Kim Jong-un and, and that sort of thing and also moves to kind of uh, remove the US military from, from from fights um, and wars abroad and and that sort of thing. But do you have a sense at all that there are any significant changes that I guess have happened or might happen as a result of, of who is successful in the election? Uh, Trump has been... I, I don't have any more Trump time for Trump than I, I imagine many of your listeners do, but uh, I, I do have to say we must discriminate be- between... Trump and our likes and dislikes, and those ideas of his that are, are valid, and to take an, to take the, to me the most prominent example, better ties with Russia. It's a good idea, you know. Uh, uh, RussiaGate is has been a, a disastrous calamity over here. Um, uh, but he's been frustrated. Trump, uh, there's, I often try to explain in my columns, there's Trump and there are the people around him, okay? The people around him sank the, the, the Trump-Kim summits um, uh, in Hanoi. Uh, and by people around him, I mean Pompeo and, and Bolton. Uh, that's on the record. Uh, uh, what can come of a of a new administration? It's an, it's interesting. Uh, the the working notion is that a Biden presidency, and we're, we're perhaps on safe ground, at least tentatively presuming that that's what we are in for. Uh, the, the working presumption is that Biden is going to change everything. I don't think so. Right? Uh, everybody's been. Everybody's been, uh, they've been outwriting each other on the China question for a long time now, right? Uh, and I think certain things, uh, to an extent uh, that, that, that people may not find welcome to realize, uh, I think certain things are in place now that will be difficult to, to uh, dislodge, like the tariff uh, regime and all that, right? Uh, to do that, is is going to be quotation marks and you know uh, if you know america you know it's, it's those various things we consider sins uh, to be soft on china right mm-hmm. uh, so it it may be that uh, one wants to uh, alter that remedy the problem um, but one can't right the same goes in the middle east but that's another conversation right yeah um, um... so I, I i urge your listeners to to uh, not to expect terribly much uh, uh, joe biden is essentially a restorationist i th- i think a restoration of the status quo ante uh, i think is 
the last thing America needs. It's probably what we're in for. Yeah, um, it's why it's so important to have these these conversations, I guess, about the historical way that we've um, viewed Asia and, and, and our place in relation to Asia as well. We are just about out of time, so um, I'm sorry um, to, to cut you off short there, but it's been great speaking to you all. today, Patrick, and best of luck with the election. Um, we're all, you know, crossing <laughs> our fingers that it goes as well as it possibly could. And, uh, yeah, that's um, best of luck. <laughs> okay, well, let's watch together, and I wish you guys the best. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks Patrick much. Lawrence, their writer and journalist, um, his new piece is in the current edition of Australian Foreign Affairs. It's entitled Goodbye America, the Remaking of Asia. And there's plenty of other ideas in there as well. We didn't quite get around to unpacking, but can strongly recommend that article um, and others in that edition as well. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, is Australia's mainstream media anti-audience? Tim Dunlop has been considering this question for years and with the antagonism between the media and their audience is very topical right now, especially in Melbourne where the nature of some of the journalist questioning of Dan Andrews at his daily press conferences started to drive some in the audience crazy with frustration. Tim Dunlop has penned an essay for Meangine on why the media should have more respect. Welcome to Triple R, Tim. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Carly. How are you going? Yeah, pretty good. And I'd love you to describe um, what you mean by anti-audience or the attitude that you see as pervading the way journalists speak about the people that consume and comment on their work. And I suppose I already said that we kind of don't experience that here at Triple R, but I guess many might know what you mean. Um, Yeah, I'd actually be really interested to hear your views on... um, why you don't think that happens at Triple R. There's probably really good reasons for that. But the the phenomenon that I'm talking about uh, is something that has really existed for at least the last 20 years since news became digitised and went online. And that process changed the relationship between uh, the media and the audience um, in a way that I don't think a lot of the mainstream media has adjusted to properly, even at this stage. Um, so it's a case of the, the, the space in which the, the public space in which journalism is created, in which news is created, is now a shared space because of things like social media. Um, and we've just gone through this period of I guess the last couple of months where there just seems to have been article after article appearing in the mainstream media um, or on um, television shows, uh, news television shows um, that take the audience, particularly as they appear on Twitter, take them to task for either being rude or abusive or for simply not understanding how journalism works or for being um, partisan, Um, you know, you you name it. The the journalists have found something to criticise in the audience and I just find it a really um, interesting phenomenon that... It's very hard to think of another industry in which you would get 
such an open contempt expressed for a large part of the audience, and that's what I was writing in response to. One thing that I, I think sort of really fascinating is that obviously there's a lot of competition between different media outlets, and and you know in some cases really strong ideological divides as well. But there seems to be kind of broadly speaking, when a particular journalist comes under fire, for example, by asking questions that might be seen to be misguided or maybe partisan or whatever that might be, that the broader kind of industry tend to rally around them. Why do you think that is? I mean, is there a historical reason for that sort of collective anxiety maybe at being being caught out and and held to task for your kind of daily work and, and what your daily work is? Yeah, I think, look, it's essentially a class or a, you know, a professional class solidarity that develops. People um, in the industry recognise the difficulties of doing the job, and nobody denies that it's, um, it's a difficult job to, you know, to pull together um, that, that sort of news coverage and, and to do that sort of analysis, etc. all the time. It's hard to do. So I think, you know, when, when they say one of their own attacks, they take it very personally. Um, I, I think there's also, there's also an attitude um, that has to do with the, the smallness of the Australian industry in that it's very hard to be critical of mainstream media organisations if you want to have a job in the mainstream media. And so even if you're working for non-Fairfax, for instance, you know, you might end up having to get a job or ask for a job with News Limited or ABC. So it does build that sort of class solidarity. And, and we see that a lot. You're exactly right. The, the, the wagons are circled almost immediately when a journalist is um, criticised. Yeah, we saw that happen um, quite a bit recently, um, particularly because of the Dan Andrews press conferences. And I haven't actually been able to watch many of those myself. I know a lot of people in my family who generally um, aren't as interested in the news as, as I am were watching those on their phones and sometimes when they were out walking and things like that. And they were telling me what they saw kind of, yeah, drove them crazy. It made them really frustrated, not all the time, but the focus on kind of gotcha moments when they were trying to get basic information out of the Premier. And I wonder, um, you know, give us your thoughts on what could have played out differently there if media took a different perspective? Because I got the sense from your piece, Tim, that you were kind of um, suggesting they could have seen that like almost like a collective broadcast that recognising the audience is tuning into this and this is a chance to serve that audience because they had the privilege of being in the room. Um, yeah, maybe talk to your thoughts around what these press conferences showed us about the, the media's attitude towards audience. Sure. There's, I, I think there's, there's two angles on this. The, the, that space, that particular space that Andrew's created by doing those open-ended press conferences, it, it kind of it fell, fell between two stools. In, in one sense, the journalists are there, and they do have to do that work of um, you know, holding into account and getting him to explain certain aspects. Um, of the policy that's emerging around COVID, etc., um, and and you know, and there are genuine questions to be asked um, around um, you know hotel quarantine, etc., etc. But the 
the press conferences were also much more like just um, a regular interview where they, you know, there were there were a lot of rules around lockdown, for instance, and people. I, I, this is this is what sort of gets me about the coverage is that yes, the journalists have to do that job, but they also have that relationship with the audience, and they needed to understand that a lot of people in that audience were, you know, very stressed about what was going on um, around COVID, the fact that we were locked down to the extent that we that we were. Um, and so they wanted to know quite specific things. And it's interesting that you say, um, you know, members of your family um, felt this too, because I, I think this is what came up across a lot on Twitter was, was, yeah, look, I kind of get that you've got to ask him these questions about um, uh, about quarantine in hotels, etc. but... How many people can I have around for dinner? You know, it's you know, can you find that out for me too, sort of thing. So I think there was a real clash um, of needs within that space, and and I don't think the media handled it very well. Yeah, I was speaking with Tim Dunlop all about his piece for Mianjin, Journalism Saves Democracy, That's Us, which is a really interesting kind of meditation on how the media sector more broadly views its relationship with its audience. And I think it's it's kind of important, I suppose, to draw a line between blatant trolling and people who might just be sort of disgruntled with the, the approach taken by a particular journalist. But, but often you do see when journalists might be criticised and and this is you know Twitter is a particular there's a particular kind of communicative dynamic on Twitter that I think is different to how people engage in person but you often see kind of a reinforcing of tribalism that that is perpetrated by some of these journalists as well for calling out you know lefties or, or maybe people part of the kind of I stand with Dan crowd or whatever rather than engaging in sort of the the intricacies of their particular argument and why they might have felt it it was important to ask that question Question. Do you think it is possible to have those kinds of conversations and deliberations on Twitter? Um, I, I think it's limited. I actually think Twitter's improved a lot since they increased their character limit and they've enabled threading. I think that's really um, raised the quality of exchanges that can happen on Twitter. I think that's been a real improvement over the last couple of years. Um, Twitter's just one, one aspect of it. I, I think what really kind of... Um, got on my nerves over the last month or so were these endless articles in um, newspapers, The Age, The Guardian, um, various news limited, mastheads, etc. Um, even pieces published by the ABC, by ABC journalists, um, where it, they, were, they were constructed as journalists talking to journalists about the terrible things that the audience says on Twitter and the way that that was presented was you only ever, they only ever reproduced um, the worst things, the most horrible things, the most stupid things that were said on Twitter. And what I really kind of resented about that and what I think a lot of people resented about that is if you actually do dig into some of those threads, there's quite legitimate criticisms put in a very sane and balanced way. Um, but it, it seems like the journalists writing these articles never responded to those or never gave voice to those things. And I think it, and it, 
the other thing that annoys me about this is that the editors of these um, newspapers uh, happily publish any number of those sorts of articles. But um, I know people, including myself, who um, have submitted articles, um, you know, to address those sorts of issues, and we just have them rejected. Mm. So it, it's like um, they only want to hear the journalist side of the story. And I think under those circumstances, like, I, I, that, that's kind of the thrust of it to me. It's that power imbalance. Most people on Twitter are just ordinary people, uh, you know, trying to engage with who, people who they see as much more powerful in the greater scheme of things, namely journalists in the mainstream media. Um, and that, that power imbalance comes out, so people end up feeling very frustrated um, that they don't get to... That, that no matter how careful they are in the criticisms that they offer or how valid those criticisms are, that the journalist can kind of just ignore it and then write another article about, uh, did you see all this nonsense from the Twitterati the other day? It's, it's interesting it to me. Frustrating. Yeah, it's interesting to me, Tim, because um, you'd think with the, the kind of crises that mainstream media finds itself in, particularly with ad revenues and, I suppose, fragmentation of audiences and so forth, that the attitudes that you've um, you say you've observed for you know twenty odd years might change because you know um, media needs audience um, so that um, that antagonism is still there in some quarters is quite interesting to me. But I, I sort of, in the time we've got left, I wanted to ask you about the petition that we've seen happen um, recently. Kevin Rudd led that, um, calling for a royal commission into News Corp, and that really goes very much to power and power dynamics that you just raised. And some journalists have, you know, sort of said, well, the audience siding with the government in regards to the Dan Andrews presses or whatever is, um, you know, turning against those of us holding power to account. But you actually point out that News Limited, you know, the Murdoch press has a lot of power in in our community. Yeah, exactly right. Um, it... it it is interesting to me that some journalists did see it as the audience fighting with the power of the government against journalists, and journalists are meant to, you know, hold governments to account. I did, it, it just didn't seem that way to me at all. A lot of what people were responding to were uh, was the obvious partisan bias of News Limited. Um, you know, the, the, the Daniel Andrews press conferences didn't happen in a vacuum, but, you know, it's part of an ongoing News Limited campaign against Labor governments in general. It, you know, it's, and it, we all know that. It's, um, it's, it's a well-known fact, but, you know, it's a, it's a, they are very right of centre publication and that they're very hard-hitting against Labor governments. So people were pushing back against that. So it wasn't really... Um, siding with the power of the government. They were actually standing up to the power of the media. Yeah, and it's, you know, that I think that petition's had over 449,000 signatories so far. I think it closes this week. So it shows that there's a significant number of people who are concerned about issues around media diversity and, and quality of our media as well. But, I mean, it's been known for a long time that trust in journalists is quite low and, and, and has been quite low for a long time. Um, do you think that, that, that people sort of do, or broadly speaking, that the public or the audience do really value kind of, for one 
want of a better term, objective kind of rigorous fact-based reporting. And, and that can partially be explained by the, the large numbers of people who have signed on uh, to this petition. I absolutely believe that. I, I, I really do. I think, um, I don't think people just want a media that um, reinforces their prejudices. And I know this goes against a lot of kind of um, almost common sense understanding within the media these days, but I just don't think it's true. I think people really understand. So the, the most interesting thing to me about sort of Twitter is that the people who are on there and are commenting are the most engaged people with politics more generally. They generally, they're often very well informed um, and they understand the processes, you know, more than the average um, viewer or reader does. And it, it's almost like the more engaged they are, the, the more resentful the media get of it, but get of them. But I think, yeah, at the end of the day, particularly that, part of the audience, they really understand that, yeah, you know, a, a media, a free press is an essential part of democratic accountability and that we need them there. But they're not arguing against that. What they're arguing against is um, when it's done badly and they don't feel that the media is living up to that civic responsibility. Thank you so much for your contribution, Tim. And um, I found it really thought-provoking. And so I commend people to your article um, on the Mianjin blog. It's called Journalism Saves Democracy. That's us. And, um, yeah, all the best. And I'm sure we'll speak to you again in the future. Thanks, Kylie. Thanks, Dylan. Appreciate it. Catch you soon. Tim Dunlop there, uh, journalist himself. Triple. Ah. Joshi has spent a decade working in the renewable energy industry as a data analyst and in communications and his razor sharp assessments of Australia's climate and energy track record has seen him become a, a really important voice of possibility and of optimism that we can drive down emissions in what can otherwise feel like a pretty grim situation. His book Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil Free Future is a case in point. In it Keaton argues that action on climate is hard but Australia Australia can help make it easier, that Australia is at, a, at the pointy end of climate impacts but also of solutions and that through understanding the fear narrative that has paralysed us, we can help shape a different kind of story for our future. And it's really great to have Keaton at Triple R and congratulations on your book. Keaton, welcome. Thanks so much for the kind words and uh, thank you for having me. And you write in Windfall that misinformation and fear has prevented Australia from realising the enormous benefits that the transition to a decarbonised economy offers. Why do, you, why do you think that's the case? Why has fear been able to win the day to date? I guess it's a it's a long running story that extends well uh, beyond this climate issue. Uh, in that fear, fear is effective uh, when you have a, a sort of fear based message. You don't really need to back it up with facts or analysis or anything like that. Uh, as long as you get the emotion right, uh, then and and you sort of like tap into the right anxieties of the time uh you you will actually be quite successful uh and that was paired with the rise of 
new sort of forms of digital communication that tend to uh, exacerbate emotion and they tend to disincentivize uh, slow and careful analysis. Obviously, you know, social media is one of those. Um, but of course, you can also trace it back to changes in traditional media, um, things like television and print media, uh, who also face sort of pressures of, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to get revenue and then knowing simply that uh, highly emotional messaging in media is effective. So those two things combined uh, resulted in, uh, I guess, scare tactics around climate action um, becoming quite effective around 2010-ish. Uh, and we've sort of been dealing with that change ever since. And I mean, a lot of those things that you just mentioned there are here to stay, maybe not the fear tactics, the tactics hopefully, but um, the others, social media and the like, are here to stay. So what are you sort of seeing as the opportunities to immunise us against more lost years when it comes to climate and energy policy? Because, of course, you know, we've had a carbon price in Australia and, and that um, is, is in our past. Um, what, what do you see will, will work for the future to change what has become quite a dominant narrative? It's, it's a really tough question with uh, two, two good answers. Uh, so you sort of have to trace back the history of science communication and the best thinking about how to advocate for uh, fact-based actions. Uh, you know, this is a problem that has plagued pub public health initiatives for a very long time, um, particularly when it comes to misinformation campaigns. And it's something, of course, that we all realize uh, very acutely this year uh, when a pandemic uh, and our uh, actions to fight the pandemic are being uh, stifled by misinformation. Uh, so when it comes to climate action, obviously the first thing to do is uh, instead of doing sort of relatively tame fact-checking style approaches to misinformation, uh, actually what you nearly need to do is make that uh, fact-checking very compelling and very interesting uh, and that's a little bit difficult. You have to sort of turn it into a bit of a political story. You need to explain the history of misinformation and the personalities and the money and uh, the sort of really compelling and interesting story behind misinformation. In addition, of course, to talking about the technical and the scientific things, uh, you almost have to become an advocate of facts as opposed to a transmitter of facts. Uh, and so that's a really unusual and new thing that a lot of people uh, working in the climate action space have to deal with. And of course, you know, that is how I've modeled my own career. I sort of like fell into that, you know, around 2013. I didn't quite realize that that's what I was doing until a few years later. Um, and that's the approach that I take, of course, still on social media and in all of my writing uh, and the second factor to fighting back against this thing is sort of coming at it from the other end, which is uh, talking about how to make climate action really beneficial to people. So uh, when these changes are implemented, uh, they need to be something that people relate to very closely. Uh, they need to participate in these changes. And, they, and most importantly, they need to see some benefit in the very short term. Uh, and so an example would be, for instance, uh, a community that uh, has a solar farm nearby, but you know, get some sort of benefit from it, such as payments to the local council or even people holding shares in that solar farm and making a profit from it. That kind of engagement with climate action um, has a really very significant impact on the way people respond to misinformation because suddenly they have a stake in it. 
Um, and when people have a stake in it, they start to become a bit more critical and a bit less responsive to emotional triggers. So uh, that's the second really important part of it. Yeah, I think you um, also write about what I see is a really interesting kind of case study in exactly what you're talking about, and that is opposition to wind farms. I mean, that was that was pretty hot at, at different times where communities have really raged against um, large-scale wind being in their areas, and we've saw a whole lot of um, you know wind farm syndrome and and bird strike and a whole range of different reasons thrown at why these wind farms shouldn't be in one place or another, but you you were working in the wind industry early in your career and you kind of saw that firsthand. How has that resolved itself? Because we don't hear that so much anymore, but we're now starting to hear it again around things like renewable energy zones and these other ideas that will bring, um, I suppose, the next generation of technology online. Can you sort of talk about that progress of what happened around wind and, and what we might learn from that? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because it happens to many, many different technologies. Uh, so the other thing people might be quite familiar with is the rollout of mobile phone towers back in the 90s. Uh, and what happened with mobile phone towers is they just sort of got, you know, carpet bombed onto uh, communities. Um, and, you know, uh, telcos just kind of just put them there and hoped for the best. Um, and they did it with such intensity and such speed that a lot of negative outcomes happened, right? There was plenty of community opposition to mobile phone towers. A lot of people were concerned about the health impacts of mobile phone towers, um, which in most cases was unjustified because the strength of uh, electromagnetic radiation from them is far below levels at which you would consider to be dangerous. But of course, the real issue there was that people weren't involved in the decisions to site those towers um, they kind of felt railroaded and badly surprised. And so they react very strongly and very emotionally. Um, and, you know, many of us would react the same way if we were in the same position, me included, um, even if it doesn't always necessarily align with the best scientific evidence. Uh, and so it's not an unusual or unpredictable thing. Um, and so, of course, the same thing happened with wind farms. And the important thing there is that it's not unique to, to wind farms or mobile phone towers. Um, there are little factors that make these things better or worse. You know, so for instance, if there's like a an intentional misinformation campaign from opponents of that technology, of course it's going to be worse. And we're seeing we're seeing a very similar thing with 5G technology uh, this year. Um, of course, when you combine it with the anxieties of a pandemic. Um, all, all emotions are heightened, um, you know, times 100. And so, of course, what happened in the end with wind farms and the same with mobile phone towers is that these things just tend to fade over time. Um, and so uh, it's very hard to maintain that level of emotion. And, of course, once that technology becomes familiar, um, and, again, we see a similar thing with the deployment of Wi-Fi in schools. There was a, a big flurry of opposition to Wi-Fi in schools, um, once the technology becomes familiar, of course, uh, people stop opposing it. But that doesn't mean that it's, it's still better to get it right from the outset. And in the particular case of renewables um, or even just any technology to fight uh, climate change, it is actually important to get it right the first time because additional emissions uh, have a near permanent impact on human safety, right? Like this is something... Uh, that we need to get right the first time because the urgency of reducing emissions is so great. 
So you can't just sort of go, well, you know, even if there's a bit of delay in the initial rollout due to community backlash, that's fine, you know, because it'll go away eventually. Um, Because slowing down the rate of change here has very real consequences for human health and and human safety and the environment. Um, And the parallel that I mentioned in the book uh, is actually community responses to transmission lines in Germany. Um, The consequences of backlash against transmission lines to transport um, wind from high wind areas to high population areas in Germany has been a major impact on the entire country's um, renewable targets and consequently the whole country's climate targets. Um, And it all boils down to this community issue. Um, So I still, you know, I worry quite a lot that we're still having trouble getting this right. Um, But once we do get it right, then we'll have a bunch of flow-on benefits. Um, Like I mentioned before, once people participate, they respond very differently. Yeah, and I think um, Keaton Joshi is our guest and we're speaking about his book, Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future. And um, you you point out there that that time's not on our side. The scale of action is enormous. We need to cut emissions um, now and continually and halve them this decade. And and the Paris Climate Agreement sets out what the goal is by mid-century, and that is net zero carbon emissions. And I sort of like how you sort of um, evoke the castle in your book and and say that some of this change is depending on the vibe of a thing, um, that, you know, decarbonisation has to be more like a warm hug from a friend than a stern taking down by a science teacher. Can you kind of talk about framing? Because you you speak quite a lot in Windfall about the framing around around fear, but also what's important about um, framing around hope and, and possibility, do you think? Keaton, what what do we need to do there? Yeah, this is a. <laughs> I forgot I wrote that. Um, it's, it's really funny, nice. It's it really stood out to me. Things. I'm like, oh, that's a nice way of it's saying. Not, I thought um, it was nice because I can imagine both things. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is this is a really really important thing, and I think again, we're still sort of struggling to figure out the best way to do this. And of course, of course we're struggling because no, our species has never encountered a problem of this type before. So it's going to be hard. Um, But what we really need to start doing is thinking about climate action uh, that leaves absolutely nobody behind. And on top of that, um, focuses on the people who are already suffering some form of injustice. Uh, So this is described uh, in various ways around the world, but generally it's described as climate justice. And so that means baking in, curing some sort of long, long running problem or sort of deep wound um, as part of climate action. And so this is really uh, something that's emerging in the US and a bit in other countries as well, like Europe, perhaps not so much in Australia, but to give you an example of uh, climate justice um, in, in America, in California specifically, uh, there's a big push to get gas out of, out of homes, right? So this is basically, you know, when you heat your home or when you cook uh, and you have a gas pipeline running into your home, um, there's a very large emissions footprint associated with homes, you know, people's homes who, that use gas. And so there is really only one way out of this, which is basically uh, to electrify homes, right? So to, get, to disconnect those homes from the gas pipelines 
and replace the cooktops and the heaters with electric versions of the same function. Now, the people who cannot afford to switch to that electrical option uh, end up on a gas network where instead of a million customers, there's 10,000 customers. And all of a sudden, the gas network is still paying the same infrastructure cost, but they've only got you know like a tenth of the number of customers or uh, one hundredth of the number of customers. And so those people who can't afford, like renters, you know, I'm a renter, um, people who can't, who don't even have the choice to to electrify their homes, all of a sudden their gas bills might just go up wildly. And these are people who are already in a in a precarious situation. So, um, of course, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't electrify. What it means is that when we look at these options, we have to go, okay, you know, what are the second order consequences? Um, what's going to happen to, you know, vulnerable people, um, to people who can't afford an electric car or, um, you know, people who live in a situation where they may not be able to access community solar or um, buy renewable energy certificates. Um, all these things end up, uh, when you start to consider all these things and bake them into climate action that's what I mean by going from, you know, a sort of a dressing down from a stern teacher to being a warm hug because it has uh, elements of empathy and uh, thought about the things that are really grinding us down. In particular, this year, like this year has really been something where a lot of the bad things have been accelerated, right? So, for instance, people in precarious work conditions um, thanks to COVID-19, uh, they would have found their precarity worsened. Um, and so I think that COVID-19 has increased the need to make climate action something that is specifically and consciously generous and um, focused on human well-being. Um, so, and I think that, that that's, you know, it's only a good thing. You know, this is something that only makes climate action faster. Um, and from a technological perspective, uh, I think enhances our capability to use technology um, and to use sort of science and engineering to resolve this problem. Yeah, and of course, we started the year with the fires, which, you know, felt like it changed everything. But with um, the, the pandemic, we saw, uh, you know, the student fury um, that had been building over over some time, you know, by necessity dissipating and or go, on, go online, I should say, um, and its presence wasn't so much on our streets. So things have changed this year. But I did um, really like the way that you um, sort of talk around that idea of, of of delaying action is, is kind of a denialism in a way, but you go further and, and say those of us that might feel that we're cooked already, you know, like um, we have already baked in so much um, climate change um, into the system that, you know, what what's the point? Um, you mm-hmm. address that as well, this kind of, um, um, you know, the throw your hands up version. You don't go for that either. No, this is uh, referred to in some instances as doomism. Uh, and it's important to be clear about about what I'm sort of complaining about in that part of the book, because uh, my gripe there is with people who say that uh, we cannot do anything. We've, we've essentially run out of choice and that even if we were to run as hard as we possibly could on this, it would have no impact on the climate of the future. Uh, and I, I really... First of all, that's not supported by science. Um, but it's also important to delineate it from another view, which is essentially that 
the consequences of climate change are extremely dire. Um, if, if we don't act, the consequences will be quite disastrous. Um, and sometimes the two get muddled a bit, but I, but I very much agree with the idea that um, if we don't act, the consequences will be very bad. Um, but something that's worth highlighting with doomism uh, is basically that when the bushfires happened in Australia, for instance, what happened is people were assigning blame for those fires, right? So they were sort of saying, look, you know, um, Scott Morrison, you, you sort of hold some responsibility for this because your government has implemented policies uh, that, you know, delay climate action or uh, uh, deny the problem. Um, and it was simultaneously untrue, but a little bit insightful as well. Of course, uh, the things, the patterns that we see in the atmosphere today uh, and the natural world are the consequences of roughly three or four decades, right? So the, the choices and decisions made by human beings in positions of power who hold the levers of these uh, aspects of our society and who can choose to act or choose to not act, those are the people whose decisions resulted in that bushfire season in Australia being so severe. So it sort of didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, this was the consequence of the actions of people. Uh, and in Australia, Australia, of course, uh, has been a major player in global climate negotiations in a bad way uh, for those decades. Uh, Australia was there, you know, in the late 90s, arguing passionately and strongly against uh, stronger climate action and sort of carving out areas of uh, loopholes for itself so it could continue to increase emissions even as it participated in global climate agreements. Uh, and so those decisions actually did contribute to the situation that we find ourselves in today. Um, and the reason that I highlight that um, several times in the book is because the decisions that we make today will do the same thing. Um, they will decide the future in the next few decades. Um, and that hasn't changed. You know, there's no difference to the past as, 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 as there is now because climate uh, is something that responds to human activity. That's the whole point of the science is that um, it's anthropogenic, which means um, humans have an influence on it. Um, and so that is why I frame doomism or the idea that we've sort of gone past a point where our actions have any impact uh, as analogous to climate change denial, because it's essentially the same message, which is that our actions have no consequence for the future. Uh, and it becomes an excuse for an action. Um, and it bothers me quite a lot because the prospect of in two decades time, people looking back and saying, why didn't you do something when you had a chance? And us saying, well, it was because we just kind of assumed that it wouldn't do anything. Um, that bothers me quite a lot. And I find that quite horrifying, um, which is why um, I guess I write about it with some uh, passion and intensity, because I think that we have a lot of possibility. Uh, we have a lot of capability to do things far more than we've been led to believe. Yeah, and I mean, you point out that it's it's not binary. We're not um, exactly screwed and not exactly saved either, which I quite like that way of putting it. We're running out of time, but I, I wonder what your thinking is around um, independent MP uh, Zali Stegall's um, climate bill that she's going to put forward in November. Um, it's a private member's bill, and she's um, you know really trying to get good support for it. This is something that 
you know, if successful, and um, I'm interested in whether you think it might be, um, could do something um, more comprehensive than some of the kind of policy action around the edges at the federal level and and what the states are capable of doing um, with their net zero by 2050 targets. Do you think this climate bill um, is a big step potentially for Australia? Yeah, I've, I've read it and I like it. Um, and the reason I like it is because my first question with any net zero um, target of any kind, whether it's for a corporation or a government or a state government, uh, is what are the consequences today and tomorrow? You know, what what how how will decisions change? You know, what's going to be the consequence right now? Um, and what is baked into um, Zali Stegel's bill is five year targets, right? Which means uh, you have no choice but to pay attention uh, to this policy and this uh, long-term target, often what we see with net zero targets is that they're sort of put in place and immediately forgotten because 2050 is 30 years away and people uh, can can happily forget about it. Um, But of course, the most important thing is that we need to act now. Uh, We can't save all the action for the final five years um, because of course, then it makes it almost impossible. Uh, and so that target, like the UK's target, uh, has five-year blocks, right? So you've got to kind of set those targets at a five-year level through a process in Parliament. Uh, and there's, of course, there's fighting about those targets, but that is part of the d- democratic aspect of climate action, right? People need to decide this together. Um, but what people are deciding is together is the shape of climate action, not whether or not to act on climate change, um, because that is decided, right? The public has firmly and solidly decided around the world, everybody, uh, that this is something that we need to do and we need to do it quickly. Um, But that bill is really just introducing a set of levers and tools on how to make it happen in the short term. Uh, and that's why I like it. Um, as, a, as to the question of um, how successful it would be, um, look, even if it doesn't get through, I mean, it, it serves as a as a really stark and very sort of obvious um, signifier of the fact that the government isn't doing that, right? They're not sort of thinking about um, 2050. They're not even really thinking about short-term targets. Um, they've sort of left the Paris target as it is, uh, even though the idea is that right about now is when we're meant to start ratcheting up those Paris targets. Um, that was sort of the intent of the original agreement. Um, it was described as the ratchet mechanism, and uh, Australia has just sort of gone, well, we just won't increase our targets. Um, and so about as much inaction as you can possibly have on that, Australia's government is doing, uh, in addition to building new gas and, um, you know, coal infrastructure. Um, so it's a bad situation, but I think when you hold it up against uh, something like Sally Stegall's bill, it, but just, it just highlights how clearly and how dire the situation is. Uh, so I think that it's going to have a good impact regardless, but I do hope that it does get through because, of course, it's a very important mechanism for getting this done. 
And that's Keaton Joshi, a data analyst and communications expert working in the area of renewable energy. And we were speaking there about his book called Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free Future. And um, just so you know, Zali Stegall's climate bill is expected to be put forward into Parliament next week. And it's really interesting to be playing uh, that conversation back um, as a Deloitte report was put out today saying that Australia risks economic, um, massive economic hit on climate inaction rather than action. So the conversation very much changing. And also since that conversation, um, Japan and South Korea have both set net zero by 2050 targets. So a very uh, fast moving um, situation, what's happening with, with climate commitments at the moment. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.